VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I hadn't actually thought mm. that the person starting this bank would be me. I'd done this world trip. I talked to all the companies. I knew it was possible to do this. But I didn't realise, I didn't come to the conclusion that it could be me. And the first time I said the words, I'm starting a bank, and the words came out, I shocked myself. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, and this week we're going to the bank, or we're taking it to the bank. I like that better. Um, yes, we have on the program this week, Anne Bowden. She is the founder and CEO of Starling Bank, which is a startup bank in the UK valued at more than 3 billion dollars with a b um, or about 2.5 billion sterling uh, in real money as they would say anyhow it's an app-based banking startup really interesting not least because starting a bank is really hard especially if as Anne was starting out as a woman in her 50s and having never started a company before in her life so let's just say that the fundraising alone was a challenge you get all the details in the pod. It's really great. You're going to enjoy that. But anyhow, Anne was in San Francisco recently to talk to some potential customers. So I grabbed an hour to talk with her about her grand plans, which includes kind of starting to try to sell the kind of platform, the banking app-based banking platform she has built to other banks trying to kind of get hip. We go through the whole startup story, making a bank from scratch, and why the big banks suck. So we cover all of that. And more, but what we don't cover, um, Starling was recently accused uh, uh, this month of being super lax in its checks on loans that were handed out under the government COVID bounce back loan scheme for small businesses. Now, Starling and Bowden have denied these charges, but they're basically being accused of kind of waving through the door hundreds of millions in loans and because they were backed by the government kind of not really caring too much about whether they're paid back or not as a way to kind of quickly build up their business their small business arm now the company has said that is completely false and they point out starling was actually getting criticized back in the beginning of this whole program for rejecting too many people which is true. So it doesn't feel like both things can be true, but obviously a lot of politics involved here. There's going to be more of that story just going forward. But just to let you know, that all emerged after she and I sat down. That said, 
It's just a great founder story. It's a great startup story and it's a great company. And it's just really interesting to see, you know, it's, again, it's just one of these cases of someone has an idea and won't let go of it in the face of very long odds and everything screaming, go do something else. So anyhow, that is what you're about to hear right now. So I will now hand you over to my conversation with Anne Bowden of Starling Bank. Enjoy. Welcome to the West Coast. Thank you for inviting me to your show. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So um, well, what brings you out here? Well, I'm sort of talking to some people today like yourself and I'm at the Finnovate conference today and it's an exciting trip back to this part of the world. First since the pandemic? First since the pandemic. This is crossing Atlantic for the first time since the pandemic is a big thing. Mm. And what surprised me is the is the atmosphere around here. It's still quite quiet. Uh, London is very, very buzzy. I think London's almost gone back to normal now. People are out and about and going back to the offices. Yeah, no, we were talking before we started recording and it was I was just there and I was just completely stunned by just life there. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like the, the pandemic was done, basically. At yeah. least that's how people were kind of acting, more or less. Yeah, London's very exciting at yeah. the moment. So the people have um, people have decided that... They're going to park up on a new way of going about their business. You know, they're still mm. hybrid working, but there's a lot of excitement. So what is it? What are you guys doing on that front? Because mm. I think the whole work, what is happening with work right now? Because especially, I don't know if you saw, um, week before last, Airbnb said, look, you can work wherever you want now. And you get to keep your Bay Area, San Francisco high salary. Wow. So literally, you can work anywhere. Also, you can work in another country, any of the 190 countries we operate in for at least one month a year or something like that. And it was really just like, we do not care where you are. Take your giant Bay Area salary and go live a fabulous life somewhere else. Well, Starling has almost doubled in size since the pandemic. We now have nearly 2,000 people. 2,000? Yeah, 2,000 people. And Starling is all about talent, all about having people with an extraordinary talent wanting to build something very, very new in financial services. And therefore, we are very, very keen to tap into what our employees want. And the majority want hybrid. They want to spend some time in the office. They want to spend some time at home. And it's up to us to get that working environment right uh, we're relocating in our London, in the London office. We are taking new premises that are much mm. more um, conducive to a different style of working. What does that mean? Mm, I think it's better offices. I think we've got to have the offices to that people want to come to. Yeah. You know, everybody's standard of living in some respects has gone up. Mm-hmm. People have been able to work when they wanted to and have the best tech yeah. and the best environment and the best coffee machines. Mm-hmm. Um, now they want that in the office as well. Mm. So we are, you know, we're spending more in our office locations. Mm. Uh, and So is this we, like kombucha on tap and ping pong? Uh, no, we're not, we're not quite <laughs> having the ping pong. Uh, but it is, we are doing really well at the moment to get, to really listen to what our customers want and our employees want mm. and making sure we actually match that. Right. Right, right. And d- during the pandemic, did because I mean, I think when you have companies like Airbnb, and obviously, Apple's gone the opposite way and said, yeah. everybody back five days a week, and a lot of people are like, mm. 
And it, start, it is becoming a differentiator in terms of talent. We have a talent war out there. We have to win that talent for our organizations. And I don't think you can be draconian. I don't mm. think an employer can say you're going to be in the office or you have to work at home or this is how the world works. In an organization where talent is so, so important, you have to put a lot of care and attention into making sure that talent wants to stay and can do their best work. Yeah. And were you surprised by like the, and what, what was the kind of outcome in terms of when you went, I presume you had to shut all your offices down during lockdown, et cetera. What did that do to productivity? Did you see a change? Did you see an improvement? Did you see a reduction? Like, what did you see as a kind of running this business? Yeah, Stalin's very good in, in responding to the challenge. We were founded in 2014, and every year has been a big challenge to go to the next level yeah. of development, of sophistication, of performance. And the pandemic meant that we had to lift our game yet again. And we did that and we launched new products. We engage with both government and our customers really, really well. And we shone, we did really, really well. And I think when an organization is put under that pressure and responds, it gives us confidence that it can also go to the next level. It was very, very exciting. Right. I want to talk about FinTech for mm. a moment because as you'll know, running a fintech company, tech company, it's brutal right now. <laughs> yeah. And just if you look at what has happened to, I think Facebook has lost $500 billion of market value. Netflix has lost $200 billion. PayPal has lost, I don't know, $100 billion plus. Um, these are just extraordinary times. And the, the more and more people I speak to out here, it's like, especially venture capitalists, they're saying, batten down the hatches. You either are not going to raise another round for a very long time. If you do, your company will take a huge valuation hit, and you better be you better sharpen your pencil and think very carefully about your costs. I.e., start cutting jobs now to kind of because this is going. To, we're entering a kind of a tech meltdown. You know, dot crime crash two point so That is at least that is the tenor of things out here. I don't know what you're saying. When we look at the public markets, we're seeing that the organizations that are not profitable are performing a lot worse than the ones that are yeah. profitable. Starling is in a bit of a unique position. We're a bank. We've always been a bank. We're well capitalized. We are profitable. And that means that we are benefiting in this environment from uh, interest rates rising. Mm. So we'd never have to raise any money again if we don't need to. It, oh really? Yeah. So because so, you just raised a boatload, right? Yeah, we, we we've raised, and uh, and how much was that to? Uh, we raised another hundred and thirty, right. hundred thirty um, million sterling. Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, we've raised about seven hundred million in total. Wow. So the the UK business in the UK we're a bank and we use our own tech, and that business is profitable and grown very very well, and for that business. You know, we could we could go forever and not raise any money. Mm. The big initiative for us now is to use the software that we've built for the UK bank for other banks around the world. And that's why I'm out here in San Francisco today. So in the, the story was that when I started the bank in 2014, it was to build new technology. 
I'm a technologist, I'm a computer scientist that had spent 30, 30 odd years working for the big banks around the world. And those banks were using really, really old tech yeah. and really, really old ways of developing software. And those banks had really covered up their eyes and said, I'm not going to see how, you know, Silicon Valley and tech companies build things. We are going to do it our way. And I came to the conclusion that a bank based on new technology built from scratch would have a huge advantage. And that was, you know, that was the start of Starling to build a new bank based on new technology. And this is really interesting also for listeners who don't live in the UK. It was a really interesting time also because I, I was living in the UK at the time and there was like, you had the financial crisis, mm. the too big to fail kind of era. And then everybody was like, wait, this system, the way it's set up now, it needs to change. This is a kind of, there's been this tragic implosion of the markets. Let's use this as a way to kind of open up the banking system that in a way that hasn't happened for, I don't mean, you can tell me how, I don't know how long. Yeah. So yes, post-financial crisis, the UK came to the conclusion that one of the ways of preventing it happening again in the UK was to have new banks. And I decided to start one of these new banks. But what's special about Starling is that it was not just a new bank and a new banking license. It was going to be new tech. And back in 2013, I spent some time going around the world, talking to financial institutions around the world, talking to tech companies around the world, trying to figure out if there was, if it was possible Mm. To have a new banking license, a new customer franchise, a new set of technology, and build a bank. And that is what I decided to do in 2014. Um, of course, I came out here trying to raise venture capital. Um, and how was, how'd that go? Badly. Mm. Um, you know, sort of, the plan was a bit audacious, okay? There was, I was turning up in Silicon Valley in here, sort of knocking on the doors of venture capitalists going... Uh, yeah, my name's Anne Bowden. Um, I've spent my whole career in banking tech. And I've never been an entrepreneur, never been an entrepreneur. I do big bank tech. And I think the banking industry needs new tech. And I'm going to build a bank on this new tech. And I want to raise money for it. And, and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so this, how's this going to work then? You've yeah. never been an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> and, it, yeah, and, and you're... You're in tech? Yeah. Okay. And how much money do you want? Well, to build the bank, I need about 300 million. And it'll take a few years before we get to profitability. And of course, we have to have a banking license. So, you know, we can't test and learn. We have to build things out and then right. launch. So, right, right. so all the things about starting this organization were contrary to what, you know, startup school tells you. Totally. Yeah. So I want to get into the tech and like kind of the 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 opportunity you saw and the tech that you have built. But before we get to that, you mentioned a little bit, you working in banking for 30 years. Can we go all the way back? Like, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And how did you kind of start along this path? Yeah. So I'm from the UK. I went to... Um, where in the UK? Uh, South Wales. So, oh, yes. Yeah. So I, very, very sort of regional part of the UK, where I went to a very, very ordinary school very ordinary parents who worked in the steel industry. What was the town you were in? Swansea. 
Okay. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, beautiful town on the sea, mm-hmm. right, but an industrial town. Yep. And I, I love tech. You know, I love... Always. Yeah. Right. On my fourth birthday, my father bought me a reel-to-reel tape recorder. You know, this was oh. in the early 60s. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. was a tiny child that loved messing around yeah, with yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I went to university to chemistry and computer science. Hmm. Chemistry was oh, no patience with chemistry, yeah. but loved computer science. Mm. You know, it was... So this was computer science in the 70s. This was 1978. So it was the early days, yeah. the early days of Unix and all right, those. Right, yeah. right, right. So it's really, days. really techy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so things went really well. I loved it. And my idea was to leave university and work in some sort of research job. Mm. And my mum said to me, you know, you have to apply for one job, an, you know, a safe job, a job that everybody else applies to. Yeah. So I applied for a job in a bank. And I went to London at, when I was 21 to join the computer department of a big bank. The computer department. Yeah. <laughs> and it was exciting yeah. in that it was very glamorous at the time. Was this RBS? Is that right? No, this is Lloyds Bank. Lloyds Bank. Yeah. Lloyds bank. And Lloyds Bank was one of the biggest banks in the world then. Yeah, it was yeah. a big bank. Yeah. And I, I did all, you know, I did wonderful training. Um, they sent me to a branch, you know, sort of to learn all the jobs in a branch. I learned about projects and I ultimately became an analyst on the project for the first real-time growth settlement system in the UK, the equivalent of CHIPS. Right. right. And so, yeah, that's my first project. And I spent a few years in Lloyds Bank. I joined Standard Chartered Bank. Mm. I did an MBA in international banking. I did a stint in consulting for PricewaterhouseCoopers. I went to Switzerland to work for Union Bank of Switzerland. Oh, wow. Ended up uh, joining Aon Corporation, spent some time in Chicago. Went out to Amsterdam to work for Avian Amro. So you've literally been everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, back to RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland in the UK. And always doing these kind of chunky kind of inside the gears of the machine, basically. Really, really difficult jobs. So right. big mega projects costing billions, running mm. departments with lots and lots of technologists mm. and big transformations, separating banks, merging banks. And in those roles came to really understand banking technology. And most of what banks feel about technology or, or know about technology is past its sell-by date. But why is that, though? Because it feels like, I mean, obviously, a lot of things seem obvious in retrospect, but it does feel like if you're kind of very tech savvy and you can kind of grab hold of like all of these innovations that are happening in other industries, it would give you a leg up. No? Yeah. But the the, the issue is banks are very risk averse, Mm. especially since the financial crisis. Yeah. And it's also a cultural thing about banking organizations and where the technologists sit. The technologists don't necessarily sit on the board. They sit deeper in the organization. And if they make a mistake, the regulators don't like it and they're heavily criticized. So you have a situation where it's safe. You know, if if you go into a job as a chief information officer or a CTO of a big bank, 
the last thing you want is a disaster. So you don't, you know, you don't shake, you know, things around too much. You get the basic things done for four or five years and you move on to your next job. Right. And the organizations have introduced more and more process and more and more risk management, which means that people are less likely to throw it all away and start again. And I came to the conclusion so I spend a lot of time going around the world talking to tech companies and talking to other banks before I started Starling. And it was possible to build great things in the tech world. You have some great tech companies building, really enabling tech. And you talk to the bank organizations and they were probably about 10 years behind, mm. really fearful of <clears throat> change. And quite frustrated by the fact that they couldn't move forward. So one day in 2000, you know, the end of 2013, I decided to quit my job to start a new bank. So what was your job, the one that you quit? I was chief operating officer for Allied Irish Banks. Right. So how do you get to that point, though, right? Because if you kind of, you've had this career, you've done very well, it's taking you around the world, and you're like, okay, now I'm just going to, chuck it in and just start this thing from scratch, which I've never done before and is going to require, it's going to take over my life and it's going to be very difficult. I came to the conclusion that somebody should start a new bank. I came to the conclusion that I probably would carry on doing this job for two or three more years. And I hadn't put the connection together. I hadn't actually thought mm. that the person starting this bank would be me. I'd done this world trip. I talked to all the companies. I knew it was possible to do this. But I didn't realize, I didn't come to the conclusion that it could be me. And the first time I said the words, I'm starting a bank, and the words came out, I shocked myself. Who would you say that to? And what, Do you remember when you yeah. said that the first time? Yeah, I, I was on holiday. You know, I was reading a book and mm -hmm. somebody, somebody came past me and said, you know, what are you doing? What do you do for a living? Whatever. And I said, I'm starting a bank. Just like and, some rando, random person. Yeah, he was sort oh, of socializing funny. in a hotel, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was shocked. First of all, it sounded pompous. It sounded arrogant. <laughs> you know, sort of, who am I to think I could start a bank? Yeah. And then secondly, well, well, people laugh at me. Well, people laugh at the mm. fact that. I'm going to start a bank. And the first time you say it, you know, you get used to it, you know, mm -hmm. it sort of becomes real. You start formulating your ideas and the excitement of, of, of doing it sort of takes over. How old were you when you started, you decided to do that? 54. So you're 54 and you're first time entrepreneur. Yep. You're a woman. Yep. Going to start a bank. So, I mean, you talked a little bit about the process out here and the kind of I imagine the wall of nose you got. Yeah. How was that? Did you ever think, what was I thinking? Or did you, you know? Yeah, I, I think I took, I, I read a lot. You know, if I could I listen to everything I could, mm. I watch as many sort of videos about launching companies and, and product development, whatever. So I had a huge amount of information. But all that information was normally cited by a guy in his 30s with a beard, okay? <laughs> right, it wasn't me. And and so trying to get used to the idea of, yeah, I can learn all of that. I'm good at learning. I can pick all that up and yeah. I can take 
all the knowledge from 30 years of working in banking technology mm. and create something that's never been done before. But people were, you know, when I went down Sand Hill Road and, yeah. and knocked on all these offices and they were all very, very polite. There's this, you know, there's a woman, she was a senior executive at a big bank. Yeah. And now she thinks she's going to start a company. Yeah. And yeah, it was difficult. People didn't think I could actually be that hands on mm. that I could, that I was so up to date with tech. Yeah. And I had the drive and ambition to do it. And sometimes I now meet these people six years later. <laughs> mm, I bet. I bet. Do you remember how many no's you got? Oh, hundreds and hundreds. Must be about, hundreds. Yeah, must be about. So I, I think I must have talked to about three, four hundred people, approached different organizations. But this was pretty audacious, okay? Yeah. I was asking for something that was was too ambitious, probably, you mm. know, I'd go in and say, look, I'm Anne Bowden. So I've got this idea. Yeah, I'm going to build this bank like no other based on the best technology in the world. And that technology is going to transform financial services forever. You know, I have all this experience, mm. but we have to start from scratch. And it's going to be a full banking license, we're going to be able to do all the banking stuff. And we're going to build it. And then we're going to take on the big banks. We're yeah. going to take market share from all the big banks. And by the way, I'm based in London. Now, based in London is a long way from here. Mm -hmm. People think it's a whole different world. Yeah. And there's also a lot of skepticism about whether you can take on the big banks. Yeah. And that's what we've done. And that's what we've succeeded at. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Who's your first Yes. Uh, my first yes was a gentleman called Harry McPike. I hadn't raised any money for two years, okay? so Two years? Two years. Two years, I'd been putting And you my... kept going? I kept going, yeah. yeah. I kept going. So for two years, I, every day, approaching um, VCs, every day pushing. Um, got and lost... so you just got, you have a deck and persistence, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was an article about um, what I was doing and, the whole fintech movement yeah. that uh, an investor based in the Bahamas had read. And he decided that he wanted to talk to um, some people who were taking on this quite dramatic and ambitious idea of taking on, mm. you know, the main banks. And he tried to get in touch with me and I wasn't taking his calls. 
And I'd never heard of the guy. He wasn't on my list. I wasn't writing to him. He was just like some dude. And you're yeah. like, oh, okay. Anyway, so in the end, he that somebody persuaded me that, you know, this was a very genuine investor. And I flew to the Bahamas. And he spent a whole day grilling me and questioning me on my business plan. Mm. From about 10 o'clock in the morning until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Really intense detail. And then... At 4.30, he invited me to his yacht. Obviously. And he continued to, as we sailed around the Bahamas, and he carried on asking me ever so complex technical questions, like nobody had ever done so. And at 11 o'clock at night, he said, and I was trying to raise 3 million, okay? This was the initial 3 million. Right. And he said, I'm not going to offer you three million. I'm going to offer you 48 million pounds for 66% of the company. What did you say? I was stunned, but I said yes. Wow. And is he from a banking background? If he's like grilling you all day on the nitty gritty of all of the stuff? He's an algorithmic trader, mm. uh, but he is a very... He's a very interesting investor that believes in doing a, a lot of research. Yeah. And he had done a lot of research and he understood what I was trying to do. He realized that if I pulled this one off, it would be transformational. Big deal. Yeah. And I'd been pitching for two years. So the pitch was pretty good. Yeah. 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 So he gives you 48 million for two thirds. Today, the company's worth what, two and a half billion? Yes pounds yes so he's feeling pretty good about life i imagine yeah he's done pretty well <laughs> so that moment when you're like wake up the next morning oh two years later i finally got this money was it kind of a, a pinch me moment or was uh, it i think the following day we did the same sort of conversation all over again and we went through all the details and it yeah. took a couple of days before yeah. i got the time sheet but it was transformational yeah. It was somebody who was prepared to invest in something that was going to really move move the dial. Mm. And with that sort of money, I could really invest in the very best tech. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an unusual fundraising story. Yeah. But very. then, you know, we've subsequently raised a substantial amount of money. Yeah, I say seven so about a billion dollars ish. Yeah. So on the tech angle, so you spent 30 years inside like the machinery of these big banks, mm -hmm. helping them do complex stuff. Why do you have to start from scratch to create something new? And what's the difference, right? Like what is the technology that you're building that is fundamentally different from what a big bank is doing? The banks have lost their confidence to build tech. So if I was to describe our architecture and how we go about building tech at Starling, you know, so your listeners in the tech industry will go nod away and say, yeah, that's how tech's built nowadays. The issue is that the banking industry have two sorts of tech. is the tech that they built themselves in the 70s and the 80s, which they have replatformed and enhanced and extended. And then the smaller banks that have bought banking packages. And those banking packages were, were built in the, you know, sort of, in the 90s and onwards. From third-party vendors. Yeah, third-party vendors. Right. And what has actually happened is, is, you know, if you talk about some of the biggest banks in the world, they have tens of thousand people 
working in technology, but the majority of the technology is still provided by third parties. Mm. And the organization has lost the ability to build tech. It's kind of keeping the plane flying rather than building a plane. Yeah. Right. So so if you go into a, a tech department at a, you know, one of the biggest banks in the world and they decide they're going to have, say, a new card processor, they'll go through a list of card processors and, they, and pick one and then start a project where it's going to cost hundreds of millions to implement it. And they will put in place processes and procedures for managing that. That's all about putting the planning up front and the implementation down the line. Mm -hmm. And those methods were appropriate when technology and coding was very expensive to do. Right. In the last 10 years, the coding has become cheaper and the tooling has become cheaper. And therefore, you should put less effort into planning and more effort into actually doing and then refining it and changing it as you want to make that product better. So in a big bank, it's all about, first of all, let's try and give somebody else the responsibility for delivery so we can blame them. Yep. Okay. Let's spend a lot of time and effort planning and managing and less time and effort in trying things out. Let's try to get the decision-making at the top level of the organization rather than at the engineering level. And then from a cultural perspective, they are so worried about the core banking systems breaking that what they've been trying to do... Which is, is a fair worry. Yeah, which is that they tend to leave it on its alone and then just build things around it. Yeah. Now, you have to change that thinking. So in order to move forward, you need to realize that engineers and software engineers are highly qualified people that have a lot of brain power, a lot of capability. They're probably better able to plan these projects than you are at the board. Yep. Secondly, change the weighting of what you're doing up front and do more and have short implementations, implement and test, implement and test. Realize that it's okay. You can do something different. You can, you know, change your systems. It is possible. And don't be so scared about it. So those sort of thinkings are really holding back the big banks. So at Starling, what we did was to, I hired the very, very best engineers, well, I think in the world, and I stick them in a room and we said, we're going to build a banking system. And I think that's also interesting is you're not hiring from the banking world. You're hiring engineers. Yeah. Because engineers, what they do is like they build machines, right? Or, you know, software to build machines or software machines. But a bank is just a, just a machine. Banking. When I started my career in banking, it was, you know, we were talking about technology being so important. But 30 years later, you know, you only in a one or two big banks in the world do you have the technology sitting on the board. Mm. So what we did in Starling was to hire the best engineers. And some of those had banking expertise. Yeah. But it's all about hiring very qualified people and setting them to work on the problem and allowing them to build rather than setting up the committee to manage the engineers. Right, right, right. And so practically speaking, you're now, um, so you got that money, what, in 2016? 
Yeah, we had the money in, we started end of 2015. 15. Yeah, so beginning of 16, we got the money and we got our banking license in 16, we launched into the App Store 17. And to give you an idea where we are, we have 3 million customers in the UK, but what is really unusual is that we'd managed to achieve 8% of market share in the small business market. Mm. And that is, look, Barclays has the biggest market share with about sort of double that. They've taken 300 years and we've taken three years. <laughs> Why? What's the attraction? Because, I mean, cool. Great. Yeah. You have an app rather than a, a network of ATMs. Okay, hole in the wall. Great. So what Like, what does that mean for me for or a business owner or somebody who just wants a bank account? You could be there 24 by 7, everything you need on the app. You know, we don't make you go into a branch in order to change your name and address. So the technology is there on your phone. Mm. And if you need to phone up. I will say, I will say, when I moved to the UK, and then when my girlfriend and now wife moved to the UK. So I moved there and it's it was like I had to give, you know, a blood sample and rights to my firstborn to open up a bank account. It was insane. I don't know if that has changed or if there's been regulations in terms of when you're thinking about post Great Recession and trying to kind of incentivize new people to start new banks. If that process, which is very arduous, very paper-based, very you have to go in person and show all these documents, et cetera, whether that has changed? All the banks in the UK are very tech-savvy. Okay? Mm. So uh, the standards and the performance is very high. Mm. So everything can be done online in the right. UK. The difference about Starling is that the service is better and the technology is better. Uh, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, this is the, this is the government agency that... The watch, uh, watchdog. Yeah. Competition um, watchdog. Actually surveys customers of all the banks hmm. and checks, you know, it, what do you think of your app? What do you think of your online? What do you think of the service? And every six months they publish the results. Hmm. And all the banks have to publish in their branches... And on their apps and on the online services, the rankings. Mm. So I go into a branch of HSBC, Barclays or, or Lloyd's. And there on the wall, on the list, mm. is Starling right at the top. Oh, interesting. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, so the survey and the attention to customer satisfaction is very, very focused. Mm. So we provide that great service. We provide that great tech we provide a huge amount of resilience and service and that is what we measured by more people switched to us uh, last year than any other bank in the uk mm. so and the uk is a is is a case study for us right it is you know we have built this wonderful tech platform that has a real live bank using it that's seen as the very best in service and performance and this tech is what I'm talking about today at Finnovate. It's the, this tech is available if other banks now want to use it. Well, you would license it? No, we run a managed service. So we run right. a software as a service proposition. I see. So I see. Uh, it is... Is that the next big kind of plank yeah, for you? Yeah, right. so the idea is we don't intend to have a banking license in the States. Yeah. Uh, we don't intend to, you know, we know what we do really well. We're a technology company. Mm -hmm. And lots of banks approached us and said, well, to be honest, they said, I use for sale. 
Yeah. And we're not. Yeah. Um, the vision is that this platform that we have built is now available to other institutions. Which is the this world. very kind of user friendly app based banking platform. And it does a whole lot of things. So it's a, an API enabled proposition. Mm -hmm. We currently already service other organizations. We service, you know, there's consumers, uh, you know, retail banking proposition, there's business banking, there are other financial institutions mm. using it, the payments rails, and that platform is available to others with their own banking license or without. Got you. Do you have any branches in the UK? Nope. The reason I ask is that it kind of makes me think of like um, the Tesla model mm. where it's like, okay, we're going to build a company from scratch. We're not going to have showrooms. We're not going to have obviously all the legacy kind of issues around pensions, et cetera, but they just have a, I mean, it was a long journey to get there, but they are where they are now. But the idea of that, like you can kind of completely remake your cost base is just different. Yeah. They, is there an aspect of that to Absolutely. So we innovate, you know, the problems we solved and the innovation we we deliver, you know, leads any other institution. And but they will copy us, you know, mm -hmm. the, the big banks will copy us. What they can't copy is our cost base. We provide free banking, we don't charge for the service, mm. uh, and we are profitable. And the reason that we are profitable is that our cost base is very efficient the tech is the best tech in the world and we can afford to give that service at those prices right uh, so yes the big banks are facing huge amount of cost-based issues which they can't transform out of right those three or four or five hundred knows however many you got do you think it would have been less if you were your kind of standard issue white dude coming out of banks after 30 years <laughs> okay. Uh, if I'd been a, you know, sort of, I think being a woman made it a bit more difficult. I think age was an issue. Mm. I think being from the UK was an issue, yeah. especially coming out here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we had all those things together. It was a, you know, sort of, it was a middle-aged woman. He was five foot tall, has never been an entrepreneur, having quite an audacious vision. Yeah. This wasn't going to be just any sort of starter. This was going to change financial services and forever. And it took me, it took me a long time to realize that this wasn't a typical proposition. Yeah. Was anybody blunt about their sexism? <laughs> yeah, people don't do it to your face. You know, I think they, mm. the people, people patronize you. Mm. You know, it's the... You know, when you go outside the meeting room door, they probably say things behind your back. But I think that you can't let those things get you down. Yeah. You just have to sort of dust yourself off and carry on. Yeah. And what was the reception or was it different trying to raise money in the UK? Because obviously many moons ago when I moved to the UK, my first job was to cover tech there. Mm -hmm. And the scale of ambition in the VC community then versus here was miles apart. It's gotten much better over the years, but it, it, it's still... I haven't been there for a while, so I don't know what the situation is now, but I just, I'm curious as to what your experience was between here and there. I think out here, the issue was who I was rather than the idea. Okay. So, right. so going in and saying, you're going to create this new company that's going to take over the world and it's going to be this big yeah. and it's going to change the industry. Yeah. Those are things people say to VCs in this area. 
that coming from somebody from the UK that spent her whole life in the corporate world was not something. In the UK, the plan was just, you know, off the chart, ridiculous, you know. Mm. You actually think you're going to do something that's going to take market share from the big banks. Are you going to grow a global company? Mm. You know, that's ridiculous. I think the UK is much more conservative Mm. in its thinking about the ability to create something that's going to be groundbreaking. Right. That's interesting. So here it was you, there it was the idea. Yeah. Right. And then just back to where you've got to in terms of market share, et cetera, and growth. Is it true that a lot of people don't use Starling as the main account? Like you're kind of like this kind of, you're the trial kind of, the people are testing you out to see whether this actually is worth or is trustworthy. Most people use us as their uh, main bank account, but they don't start using us that way. So people would start using us, you know, friend says, have you heard of this new bank, whatever, try it out, or maybe try us for a business bank account and then say, wow, we're going to use it for this. But then when they start using us, we have higher average balances than the traditional banks. We actually attract quite a unique group of people, people who are average customers about 39 years of age. I was going to ask if there's a demographic, what the demographic breakdown was. Yeah, it's, you know, average customer 39 years of age tends to be using it for the weekly shop, the weekly grocery shop. There are other, you know, sort of new banks that people tend to use for discretionary purchases, the coffee shop. We tend to be the main bank account that does the heavy lifting. Right. Right, right. The other question I had was about crypto, because as you, I'm sure you know, cryptos um, <laughs> had quite a run uh, recently, a rundown, I should say. Um, and we've written about crypto a ton. We've had a lot of podcasts on crypto. And it's like you have these purists who are like, this is the future of money. This is the future of how value has moved around. And then at times like these, you're like, this is complete bullshit. Like, Price crashes 60, 70, 80%. Giant projects go from 50 billion to zero, which just happened last week with uh, Terra. And you're kind of like, what is your view? And do you think there is a there there with crypto? I think something's going to happen, but the technologies and the ideas we're currently seeing are not going to be the ones that are going to be ubiquitous. So I think that we're in the exploratory stages. Mm. I sit on the Bank of England Central Bank Digital Currency Advisory Board. Mm. And we spend a lot of time talking about sort of what problems are we going to try and solve? And we're having great debates about issues, but I'm not quite sure if some of the solutions we're currently talking about are going to solve those problems. Mm. In the UK at the moment, we have a lot of financial crime in our payment systems. And a lot of the sort of those fraudulent funds end up in crypto wallets. Mm -hmm. So we're at an interesting time. I think that we need to decide how we're going to regulate um, this industry. We have to figure out how much tolerance we want to give it. I think there's going to be a few more years yet until we get the technology leaps that's going to make this a possibility of changing our financial landscape. 
Do you think it can change the financial landscape? Or yes. Yeah. Banking and financial services hasn't changed for 300 years. Money's been the same. Branches have been the same. We had contact centers where you phone up somebody that sort of looks like a branch in a different office. You've had the web and you've had an app. Nothing much has changed. Mm. I think it is possible to have big leaps in how we manage money. I don't think we're there yet. And I think we need to start carrying on talking and thinking mm. and pondering these issues. I'm very positive that things could be different. Look, if things are the same as they are now in 10 years' time, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see also what happens in terms of regulation, especially in London, because it's kind of like, to your earlier point, it's kind of like the money laundering capital of the world. It's There's a lot of ill-gotten gains parked in very lovely flats and houses all over the, all over the country. Uh, you know, I'm going to take issue on that, you know. Okay. The, the, okay. The, yeah, okay. I have to take issue about that. Please. The, the, London is really, really focused on anti-money laundering mm. um, sort of processes. What I think people haven't realized is, is that London at the moment and the UK at the moment has one of the fastest payment schemes in faster payments, it's called faster payments in the world, which means that payments can go between banks very quickly. Okay. Uh, which the US doesn't really have, right? Payments. And what, what is quick? Like in seconds. Seconds, right. Okay. And we have an environment where we have deregulated that and non banks allowed to join and crypto exchanges allowed to join. Hmm. And therefore, you have a deregulated environment with a very, very fast hmm. payment scheme. And there are lots of scams and lots of fraud going on where the money goes around the system and goes out to a crypto wallet and it, yeah. whatever. And the schemes at the moment, such as debit schemes and credit card schemes, are covered by insurance where people are protected. Yeah. So the UK is at the very, very leading edge mm. of new ways of doing payments and are coming up with new ways of the scammers and the fraudsters to exploit the system. Mm. So what we see in the UK, and the UK is doing a huge amount to stop these, these fraudsters and are coming up with new ways of actually detecting um, these rings and stopping the money going out the door to the wrong people. That will come to the US right. when the US starts using some of these techniques. Mm. Um, the new payment schemes introduce new ways of individuals being defrauded. Yeah. And at the moment, a lot of that money is going to crypto exchanges. Right, right, right. I forgot to ask, why Starling? Yeah, Starlings are, are quite elegant. They act in as a team. They fly around the sky very elegantly. And they, um, they land so are on... Are Starlings the birds in Rome? That kind of fly around in these really cool formations. And, and they're really elegant and yeah. they really act as as, as a team. Mm. And then when they sort of they go on to add somebody else's territory and they take it over and they knock the competitors off the perch. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. In the UK, it's you guys. It's Monzo. Yeah. Revolut. Mm. Of all the kind of energy and excitement from this past decade is it you three basically yeah i think that there was a number of banks and financial you know, sort of fintechs that started i think starling monzo and revolut are the ones that have really taken market share 
Um, Starling is a profitable bank with a business bank. Monzo is more of a neobank with less of a business bank. And Revolut are not a bank. Right. Uh, Revolut are a, an international payment and foreign exchange organization. But the UK is a very, very exciting place for new banks and new fintechs. And I think that the world is is better because of new organizations like such as these. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got other stuff to do today uh, and you're flying visit to the San Francisco, but thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Anne. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank everybody for the ratings and the reviews and telling your friends and neighbors about this fantastic podcast. Uh, No, truly, thank you for always spreading the word and those reviews. They really do help others find it, as I always say. So please take a moment and do that. I think we'll be writing a little something about Starling this weekend. So do check that out in the paper at thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fantastic weekend. Be well, stay safe, stay sane. Enjoy yourselves in a COVID-safe manner. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.